Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Diagnostic Dialogues. This is a podcast where we bring together some of the best minds in medicine and business to talk about diagnostic medicine. Now, you ask yourself, well, what's the big deal about diagnostic medicine? The diagnostic medicine often sits in the background. People don't truly understand the value of it until they need a diagnosis. They need to know what's going on. And I think COVID elevated everyone's understanding of the importance of diagnostic medicine, uh, not only locally, regionally, but certainly globally. What this says about where we are right now in medicine is it gives us a clear understanding that we cannot begin a treatment pathway unless we have a precise diagnosis. I need to know whether or not the vaccine I'm giving you, it will treat the coronavirus that you have, or the chemotherapy I'm giving you will treat the cancer that you have. That requires precision diagnostics. Our two guests, Dr. Pat Mason, who leads a large reference lab. He's an MD, PhD, and Tammy Germani, who's an operations, logistics, and business guru who works again at a large lab. And what we're going to be talking about is really the convergence of these two ways of thinking, the interdependencies between the laboratory scientific side and the laboratory logistics operational side. So with that, as a little bit of background, Dr. Mason, would you just introduce yourself to the audience and then pass it over to Tammy, and then we'll give you all a chance to answer a few questions for the audience. Dr. Mason. Thanks, Dr. Elijah. Um, I'm Dr. Pat Mason. I am the medical director of a large laboratory uh, within Quest in the Chantilly, Virginia area. I'm also a regional director that takes care of several other laboratories throughout the East Coast. Uh, By training, I am a pediatric endocrinologist. So one of the advantages I have is I have been in the hospital. I've been a clinician in the hospital taking care of children and taking care of very young babies that have uh, potential medical issues. So I do understand the importance of the laboratory, both from a laboratory side, as well as from the side of a clinician. So uh, I think that gives me a a unique perspective on really both sides of the laboratory. Okay, Tammy. Hello, everyone. My name is Tammy Germitty. I am currently the Executive Director for Health Systems Operations at Quest Diagnostics. My roots are as a medical technologist. I've worked on all shifts in all departments as a generalist. I have had the pleasure of working in both a hospital environment as well as a reference lab environment and have grown up in the laboratory business through my career as a supervisor, a manager, and in director roles. So to say it lightly, I've got a little bit of experience over the last 27 years in laboratory medicine. And we're happy to have both of you all on the show. Now, I always think it's helpful to ground the story with a patient because that's what we're really here to focus on is patient care and the way physicians and other healthcare professionals take care of the patients. And many, many years ago when I was delivering babies, I had a young woman come into my office and she was about 24 weeks pregnant is when I was practicing obstetrics. And she said she was just, you know, she's feeling fine. Everything looked fine on the uh, initial evaluation and uh, blood pressure was fine. Baby was moving around. Baby's heartbeat was fine. And she said, I'm feeling a little indigestion. I said, okay, well, tell me about that. Well, she talked about it and I said, all right, well, let's just get a lab test on you. Um, Send you over to the hospital because that was the best place to send her at the time. And let's check out what's going on. Long story short, it turned out that she had very early and very severe preeclampsia, a condition called atypical help syndrome, 
and it required the delivery of a very small baby and delivery of the mother at a very inappropriate time, if you will, but a necessary time to save the mother and the baby. Well, it turned out that both the mother and the baby were in the ICUs, the pediatric ICU and the adult ICU, because the mother continued to deteriorate. She continued to swell. The uh, liver functions continued to deteriorate. We were checking them every four hours and the baby uh, continued to struggle. Good news is, fast forward 22 years later, the um, little boy, John, came up, tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, Dr. A, how are you? And I said, I'm doing well. Mother, I recognize. And she says, this is John. He was 400 grams when you saw him the first time. And also, I mean, obviously, you know, tears came to my eyes because I couldn't believe, believe it. The point is, though, that without laboratory testing, this woman would have continued to deteriorate and probably would have died and the mother would have died. And so, you know, with that as a background, I'd like to, you know, for you, Dr. Mason, to take us through a little bit about all that goes on in the laboratory to deliver those tests. And I'd really like you to start talking about kind of the day in the life. And then we're going to start to dig into some of the things that allow you and your uh, colleagues to stay on the cutting edge of uh, laboratory medicine. So tell us a little bit about what goes on in that day, because a lot of doctors and healthcare professionals just see it as a tube of blood or a specimen, but it's a patient. It's that patient and her baby, the mother and the baby. Thank you, Dr. Leja. That was a really great story. And I think it really points out the importance of the laboratory and how that laboratory is so critical in taking care of not only that mother, but after the delivery, taking care of the baby. I will tell you, having been a pediatrician and having worked in neonatal intensive care units, there were a whole lot of laboratory studies that were done after that baby was born and continue to follow afterwards. So it really is important. And most of the diagnoses, most of what we do are really relying on the laboratory and the laboratory uh, results. You know, what does a laboratory do and how do I get prepared as a laboratorian for having those results and having those tests? You know, I have to anticipate what tests do you need? I have to anticipate what tests not only are available now, but where is the future going and how do I prepare? Because when that baby is ready to be born, you need to have the test ready at that particular moment. You can't wait down the road for us to get those tests ready and get those tests up and running. You need those tests ready at that point. Also, your decision on whether to deliver that mother or not deliver that mother is really going to be based on the accuracy and the precision that my laboratory can provide you as the clinician taking care. So you're making life-altering decisions for both that mother and that baby based on the results that I give you. So to me, that's really critical. As a laboratory a director, I want to make sure that everything we do is always at the highest quality, that the test is ready, that we have done everything we can to make sure that we are doing things the right way and that we are you know, ready, ready for that sample to, to show up. I say this tongue in cheek, Dr. Mason, having been on the other side, not understanding all that goes into a laboratory test. But how hard can it be? I mean, we draw the blood, I send it down to a courier, and then send it down to the lab. It goes into a machine, I get a readout. I mean, it's a machine thing, right? And I'm saying that again, jokingly, but I know that it's so much more than that that's required. Can you tell the audience a little bit about what goes into delivering quality 
and positioning that so that I can trust that test. I know it's it's incredibly valuable. It's correct. A lot of thinking has gone into it. We have one patient surrounded by a hundred different technicians and scientists and physicians. Tell me about what goes into that test. I think there's a lot that goes into the test and a lot goes into which tests are available for you to order. There's some basic tests that every laboratory across the country will run. These are, are critical most of those come from kits that the Food and Drug Administration has approved. Um, it's still, even that takes getting that kit, getting the instruments, training the staff, having the staff ready uh, to be able to run that test. All of the tests that we do are monitored and regulated by the College of American Pathology or the Food and Drug Administration to make sure that the result we give is going to be the correct result. So there is a program called proficiency testing where they will send out blind unknown samples to all the laboratories across the country. Each of the laboratory has to do that test and send that re result back to either the College of American Pathologist or some other organization. They will grade us on how accurate we are and do we come up with the answer that they feel that the, the test had when we started? So this is a way of, of ensuring that laboratories across the country are going to get the same result no matter which laboratory that you go to. In addition to that, there are a number of tests that for more unique or what we call esoteric testing that really we have to develop that test. There is no kit sitting on a shelf waiting for us to take that kit and put it on a machine, put the tube in, push the button and walk away. These are what we call laboratory developed tests. And for that, that really is the coming together of the scientists, the clinicians, the technicians, research and development, the whole group will come together and decide which test do we need? What need is out there? What clinical need are we trying to fill when we develop this test? then our scientists will really work on to make sure that we have a very robust, very accurate and very precise test, which then we can turn over to Tammy and her group that can you know, get all the instruments, all the equipment, everything ready for us. Then we launch that test and make sure that we can get that information out to the clinician so they know that this test is available for a particular need or particular area and then we do the same proficiency testing. We do the same controls. Uh, it, you know, there's, there's a lot that goes into ensuring that the result that you're going to get is an accurate and precise result that allow you then to make those clinical decisions on that baby. So when I go into a lab, I see this as a living, breathing, high-performance engine that's surrounded by high-performing individuals, MDs, PhDs, laboratory techs, who are incredibly well-trained. Um, tell us a little bit about, and I'm going to ask Tammy, you the same question. How do you keep that high-performance engine, high-performance culture working at a very high level? That's really one of the strengths. And I think that's what you, know, you need to look for when you're looking at a laboratory. How do they do that? Staying on top of what those critical tests are, 
is really uh, an ongoing job. So, you know, we go to national meetings, we review papers, we do all kinds of uh, things. We actually do a lot of research on our own to determine what tests are important. What are you going to need not only today, but what are you going to need tomorrow? And that's where we really have to do it. Once we get those tests, keeping that high-performance engine, remember, it's not only just the high-performance engine running you know, hundreds and thousands of CBCs through an, an analyzer, push a button and walk away. Some of these are very complicated, very detailed assays, such as next-generation sequencing, where we can sequence a particular gene and know whether there's a defect in that gene. We can do that for you know, newborn babies, that newborn baby we talked about. You know, we can take some of those, uh, the blood from that baby, and within a very short period of time, less than a couple of days, we can give you over 1,700 different genes analyzed to determine what was the genetic disorder that may be leading to a particular abnormality that, that's being seen phenotypically. So how do we do that? We have a morning meeting every day where we bring all of the directors within the laboratory. So the directors, the managers, people that are involved in the science, people are involved in keeping the instruments running, people involved in making sure that the reagents are always there, people involved in everything. We bring those together every morning at eight o'clock in the morning, and we go through the last 24 hours or, or more, and say, what issues have we had? What are the concerns? What are the problems? How do we address those right today and make that adjustment so that we don't have to slow down that high-performing engine? So, you know, let's identify the issues early if we can. Let's have all the critical people that we need on site at this meeting so that if there is a problem, they can address it right away. So we have the critical decision makers that are, are looking at this, and they then can start working on it to make sure that that engine continues to run so that when you have that blood that you need for that little baby, the instrument is ready, the people are ready, the lab is ready, and we are ready to take that and get you that result as fast as we possibly can. You mentioned staying on the cutting edge. We talked about that. And I think you mentioned research. Dr. Mason, how important is teaching to the work that you do? I think it is important. You know, again, it's that training of the next doctors to know what their lab should be looking for, training the next doctors who are going to be the laboratorians running the labs in the future. We have to make sure that they understand what is important, what is critical, how do we get them prepared that they're going to continue the high standards that we've tried to set currently. From that standpoint, it's very critical. As I said earlier, you know, to take care of the training of these students and these learners, you know, we have to stay on top. We have to be at the cutting edge. You know, we're not trying to train them what was true 20 years ago. We're training them what is true now and what is being developed for the next 20 years. So we have to understand that. We have to be at that cutting edge so that we can train them where they're going to know and what they need to know going forward. I'm mesmerized by what you're know, saying in terms of education and keeping this high performance engine in tune and continuing to allow this to grow. Now, as we pivot now, I'd like to talk a little bit to Tammy because Tammy, you've got a bigger job, actually. I mean, Dr. Mason's job is pretty easy. I mean, he just has to do the science and the medicine, but unless we can scale that and distribute that over large geographies, 
I don't want to say it's off or not, but it kind of is. So how do you do this? Tell the audience about what you need to do, what needs to happen on the operational side to support the medical, academic, and scientific engine that we have on Dr. Mason's side. Well, I can definitely say that it takes one to do the other right? One does not go on its own. So without the scientific leadership side, we can't do what we need to do. So I absolutely have all the respect and appreciation for that arm of the business. I will say that early on in my career, I learned very quickly how important the people are to this overall high performance organization. When I was first out of school, And Dr. Mason talked briefly there about teaching and the importance of teaching. We actually had students that would do a rotation through our hospital. And it was a wonderful opportunity for them not only to learn the basics of how to be a laboratorian, it taught us as the laboratorians how to continue to stretch our own brains and stay on top of that knowledge as Dr. Mason had given those great examples. So during those early years, we actually received a sample on an elderly lady who was a very hard stick. Unfortunately, her sample was clotted. And so in collaboration with the phlebotomist, we were able to get a second sample. But unfortunately, the elderly woman was just very hesitant about having another person come into their room and collect their sample and the anxiety that came with just the trauma in her mind of being collected. And so it taught me as I was working through that sample with that phlebotomist getting it recollected that you can't take for granted the tubes you receive in your laboratory or the specimens you receive in the laboratory. And I can 100% tell you that every laboratorian across this country recognizes that. And when we are trying to provide that high quality result, first of all, we have to make sure that we have quality metrics that align us with making sure that we have the right patient at the right time getting the right result. And, you know, most laboratorians who would be listening to this podcast understand that to the nth degree, but other healthcare workers who maybe don't walk a day in a laboratory in shoes may not recognize that all the work that goes into preparing that one result that comes across in the computer system for them to take action on that patient. So, Dr. Mason mentioned the background work, right? But when we're validating an instrument or a test prior to putting out test results, it can take us months just to do that piece of the work. And then every single day, we are either calibrating or performing quality control, depending on the analyzer or the test, so that we can make sure that as we're putting those results out, we have the confidence that we're giving the right results. And then how are we making sure that that information is coming across in our computer system? So we are very electronic today. And so we do have some checks and balances in place where we're making sure that 
what we said the result was going to come across saying it was going to be and the reference ranges associated with it actually come across as they are saying they're going to be. And then I would say that the next part to operational excellence is continuous improvement, right? So we spend a lot of time on the operation side ensuring that we have standardization because the more standardized you are, the more repeatable and more accurate you can ensure your processes become. There's also some cost savings associated with that. And of course, we can't ignore that piece of financial responsibility that we have. And so I was very fortunate recently to be involved in a Kaizen event. And for anyone who's not familiar with uh, what a Kaizen event is, it is essentially in simplest terms, an opportunity to map out your current process, identify either variability or where uh, there's opportunities for improvement, and hone in on uh, taking steps to improve those processes. And when you get this wealth of experience and knowledge in a room where you can really share best practices and build upon each other's uh, statements or questions that drive you to the whole next level. It is remarkable to be able to sit back and see, again, what the laboratorians are capable of doing and bringing to the healthcare field. I think that the COVID pandemic really pointed out the importance of what Tammy and her group did. You know, we had very quickly after the identification of the virus, we were able to launch several tests that could detect the virus. The problem was, is that the science that came along that could figure out what was the sequence of the virus went much faster than the infrastructure that we needed to run that test. So we had a test, several tests ready to go, but we needed help getting the instrument to run the test. Then we needed the help with the pipette tips, and we needed the help with the plastics that go along with it and the reagents. So here, from a scientific standpoint, we were ready. But if it wasn't for the all of things that operations does and what Tammy was responsible for in, in that group, you know, we were ready. But we couldn't do it without their help because we needed all of that infrastructure to get ready with this great test that could then tell whether you were positive for COVID-19 or not positive for COVID-19. So it really is the operational excellence and the medical science piece that come together. And I think COVID was a great example of how that works really to the best of it can. Wow, Dr. Mason, you are right on point for two key things. One was the people, right? We didn't have laboratorians just sitting around waiting for work to be done, right? We already had staff that were busy. And so we had to very quickly deploy Mm -hmm. people, sometimes from other parts of our organization, just to be able to meet that immediate need. And then supply chain. Wow, that was highlighted during COVID, right? Um, The importance of being able to get those supplies so that you can actually perform the test and how much it can truly harm us if you don't have a nimble organization. Right. But you all bring up a great point here. And it's, uh, I think the point is scaling care and scaling complexity. So I think of the world that I had before coming to Quest in the operating room, you've got one patient that you're taking care of. You've got 
five or six people around it, it's super complicated or whatever, but that's nothing compared to the 600,000 plus tests that you all have to deliver every day. I mean, you have complexity on the scientific side and the medical side, Dr. Mason. Tammy, you have complexity on the operational side and, and you need to pull those together. There needs to be a convergence in the thinking. Tammy, I'm going to ask you first and have it to Dr. Mason, what kind of culture needs to be present in an organization to allow the convergence of that thinking so that you get the highest performing tests and highest performing operations so that we can deliver care to large populations that are relying on us? How does that work? So when I think about culture, I really kind of think in three buckets. So first of all, you have to have a nimble culture because you've got to be able to take action very quickly and efficiently and effectively. So having a nimble culture, empowerment, I think is another important piece. So making sure that your staff members at all level feel empowered to make decisions and make change happen. And then probably the third would be adaptability. So as I mentioned, you know, that rapid change that can come with a situation like COVID, we had to be able to be adaptable to whatever our future state was gonna be. So allowing your team to be empowered, I think goes hand in hand with allowing them to be adaptable. Now, not everybody is open to change, right? Um, some people, thrive in it. Others don't. I absolutely thrive in it. And so I, I almost yearn to have change. And so I think as we move forward, certainly one of the things we learned over the last three years is adaptability. Uh, but Dr. Mason, I welcome your feedback. Yeah, I mean, definitely we've learned a, a lot of adaptability and, and being nimble over the last couple of years. Going from not even knowing what this virus was to being able to test 200,000 samples a day took a lot of adaptability and nimble thought. So, you know, I, I think that's really, it tells us that what we think we know today may be completely different tomorrow based on what's happening in the world and what's going on from a health perspective. The other big part about this is that when we're looking at new assays, we have to make sure and design them in such a way that we can scale them up so that we can get high volume. So, you know, anybody that cooks, you know, you can make a, a very nice dinner for two people when all of a sudden you have to then take that same recipe and say, okay, now we're going to serve 200,000 people with that recipe. There's a lot of things that have to go into that. You have to make sure that that's a really good recipe and that it's really stable and uh, you're not going to lose something when you have to increase it. We have to do that exact same thing when we're looking at a laboratory test. We can run a couple samples and say, wow, this test looks pretty good. But if it's not something that can be scaled up and something that can be scaled up and turned around in a very quick time, because again, we never have to lose sight of the fact that there is a patient waiting for that result. The doctor is going to make a decision based on when they get that result. So, you know, we don't want to develop a, an assay that can't be scaled up or it takes too long because they're not going to be able to wait. Dr. Lazier, you're deciding whether to take this uh, pregnant woman to surgery, you're not going to wait a couple months to, to make that decision. You need a result right away. And so I think when we're looking at scalability, you know, we have to take that in consideration. And I think that comes from 
planning, that comes from the science, that comes from Tammy having the right number of people that are there, the people well-trained to take care of these more you know, complicated assays. It's amazing. We need to have all those people ready so that we can take care of that mother and the, the baby after he's born. You know, an example of a patient that I always can't help but come to the forefront of my mind are people who just found out that they might have cancer and they're waiting for this test result and the anxiety that's got to be going on and really the torture that's going through their mind of what if. Whereas once you get that final decision or that final diagnosis, at least then you know what to do with it. But the wondering, the, oh my gosh, what if, I mean, just a minute can seem like hours when you're sitting there. So the quicker we can get that result out, the better off they are all the way around. You know, I think that that's a really good example of that cancer patient that's waiting for it. So, you know, we have to have that test ready as we talked about before, we have to make sure that when we give that patient the result, it's the correct result, because now not only are we gearing their therapy based on what the cancer might be, we're now looking at what is the body's response going to be to the specific chemotherapy agents and targeting therapies based on that result that we're giving, based on the genetics of the patient, based on the genetics of the tumor. And so we have to be accurate with that result. We have to be able to get it back to that patient because you're right. When you're waiting for that diagnosis, it's a lifetime. We need to get that back to them as fast as we possibly can, but we have to make sure above all else that we're right with that diagnosis and we're right with what we're doing. And that's the key thing. How do you get it always right? And how do you do it as quickly as possible? And, you know, we were talking about diagnosing, but there's also a piece of what we do, which is monitoring, right? Mm -hmm. And so when I think of a transplant patient who's taking a specific medication and it's imperative that they're right at the perfect dose. Mm -hmm. And one, we have to make sure that we're collecting the sample at the right time between their doses. And then we've got to get that result back in a timely manner because that physician may need to adjust that patient's dosage based on that result. And again, we don't have to go back through and tell you everything we did months and months before getting you that result because we had to validate it to make sure it was accurate. We did our proficiency testing to prove that it's falling within appropriate ranges. That brings me to a question that puzzles me. You know, I've spent a lot of time in hospitals, a lot of time in health systems, and it's only recently that I've come to understand the absolute importance of laboratory medicine. I mean, nothing happens in the hospital, nothing happens in healthcare without a laboratory diagnostic test, or very few things can happen in healthcare. Why is that? I mean, I know that we hear about great advances in cardiology and great advances in obstetrics and great advances in hematology and all these other things, but the laboratory continues to excel by leaps and bounds in the areas of pharmacogenomics, next generation sequencing, analytics, population health, and yet people are, just don't seem to understand the value and the importance of having laboratory science as part of their C-suite thinking or C-suite strategic planning. So I'm going to ask Tammy first and then ask Pat, why is it that there's absolutely essential resource? I mean, this massive collection of intellectual capital on the operational side and the medical side and scientific side, 
is not recognized as such. So I'll give you Tammy's theory. I believe that we as laboratorians historically have kind of fallen under the radar because we knew that we were doing a job that was important for patient care, but we didn't take that extra step to brag about what we did. And so it has definitely been a trend in recent years. And when I say recent years, I'm going to say 10, 20 years, right? Where we leaders within the laboratory have recognized that the C-suite doesn't always recognize our importance. And so we are putting ourselves on the table. We're pulling up that chair and sitting next to the CEO and saying, hey, let me tell you how we contribute to the patient's care. Let us show you how we can partner with your cardiologist to provide not just the best care, but we can also look at how we can partner together for cost savings. And so allowing ourselves to be more boisterous about our roles is an important piece for the leaders of the laboratory. And I think it's just as important for our pathologist team at all of these different locations, whether a hospital or a reference lab are doing the same thing on the medical side. So, I mean, it goes without saying, I'm a, I'm a big advocate for having pathologists, laboratorians, and all that surrounds them in the C-suite, because I think, Tammy, to your point, the logistics that are required to run, you know, um, high-performing laboratory operations are second to none. It's kind of like putting a person on the moon or a person, you know, the space shuttle and back. So, and that's only recognized, I think, when you get close to it. And Dr. Mason, so the same question to you. Why don't people understand the value, the power, all those other things that are part of a high performing system because I see the laboratory as the Intel chip inside the computer, you know, where nothing happens without the chip. So lab inside, I think that's it. That's a good example. I love that's that. Right. <laughs> you know, I, I think, and I want to pick up with what Tammy said and what we were talking about earlier. I think the laboratory industry has not done a very good job in, you know, telling everybody what we do. I think that if you look at it, we're talking about education. I don't think, even back to the medical school days, I don't think we spend enough time talking about pathology and uh, laboratories, even in medical school. So the doctors that come out may have wandered into the basement where they stick the pathology department and may have stumbled down there and had a conversation with a pathologist once. They may not even have a rotation in pathology or a rotation in the laboratory. So, you know, the clinicians are coming out of their training without truly understanding what the value of the laboratory. You know, just as you were a surgeon, I was a pediatrician and a pediatric endocrinologist. And I don't think I truly understood the value of the laboratory, even though I, I was in the laboratory before going to medical school. I didn't understand the value of the laboratory and the value of talking to the laboratorians about what can be done and what tests are available and how we interpret the tests. So I think that that's from the very beginning, I think we've done a really poor job of tooting our own horn in the laboratory industry. And I think we have to fix that. And I think it has to go back to that education piece that we started from the very beginning talking about and the value of education. So I think that's one of the big key factors that I think we have to do. If you look at laboratory, the critical nature of the laboratory test in 
diagnosis. Uh, I've seen various different numbers from 75 to 85% of all diagnoses are made based on laboratory studies and laboratory findings. Now, I think you know, maybe we've become such a critical part that nobody really even notices it anymore because it's just assumed that I, I can't do anything. I can't discharge patients until the labs come back and I can't make a diagnosis until the labs come back. And so, you know, I think that we're starting to understand. I think, you know, the future is going to be amazing because, you know, as we start getting into precision medicine and start diagnosing and treating based on the genetics of the patient or the genetics of the disorder, like their tumor, we're going to see that the laboratory is going to become even more important and more critical. So I, I do see that that hopefully with a little tooting our own horn and, you know, letting people know that it is important. It's really going to go a long way going, going forward. But I think that one of the things that you all you know, speak about so effectively, it's not a test, it's a patient. It always comes back. Both of you all always go back to the patient. And that's what this is all about. So Tammy and Pat, as we wrap up this conversation, I really appreciate you all being so candid and so open with the laboratory sciences and laboratory operations. What is it that you want people to remember from the time that you've given us today? And I'll start with Tammy this time. Tammy, what is it that you want the audience to leave with and talk about after they leave us today? I would like the audience to walk away with highlighting the importance of the job that laboratorians do and talk about it in every open forum they have an opportunity to talk about it with, whether it's the nurse down the hall, the CEO of our organization, or your neighbor's kids who are looking to figure out what career path that they want to take and help them recognize the importance of laboratory medicine. And just to highlight, that's coming from our business person. You know, so I think that's really great, Tammy. And Dr. Mason, Pat Mason, what would you like to leave the audience with? I want them to, uh, as sort of as Tammy said, understand the importance of the laboratory, understand all of the work that goes into preparing for that sample. And I think that they need to make sure that they understand that we take what we do very seriously. We always try to remember about that pregnant woman we started with and the 400 and some gram baby that was born, that it's a critical patient. And, you know, we, we really put our energy and our expertise into making sure that we take care of that patient and making sure that the laboratories are available and the results are there for the surgeon or the cardiologist so that we can work with them in, in the care of their patient. Well, I want to thank you both. We talk about patient care a lot. We talk about science. We talk about operations and how that all comes together to create better care going forward. Thank you all so much for a, a great conversation. And I look forward to talking to you all again sometime in the near future. All right. Bye now. Thank right. you. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Diagnostics Dialogues. We hope you enjoyed the show. Please follow us on your favorite podcast apps and follow us on LinkedIn for more cutting edge content and to engage with the physician guests from the program. Be sure to visit our site, questdialogues.com. Until next time, 